Welcome to the podcast, Civil War Survivor, Incredible True Story of a Union Private. I'm not exaggerating with this title. My great-great-grandfather, Edgar W. Clark of Lansing, Michigan, fought in four of the five battles that produced the most casualties for the Army of the Potomac. He was at the Peach Orchard in Gettysburg, Bloody Angle at Spotsylvania, Hazel Grove at Chancellorsville, and the Wilderness. He missed Antietam because he was not in the Army yet. He was home with a newborn baby girl. His unit had so many casualties that after Gettysburg, the 3rd Corps, led by General Dan Sickles, was merged into the 2nd Corps of General Winfield Scott Hancock. Edgar's 3rd Michigan Infantry Regiment lost so many members that it was reduced from about 100 men to 8 and was merged into the 5th Michigan Infantry Regiment just before Petersburg in the summer of 1864. And if being in battle wasn't bad enough, Edgar nearly died from illness during his first winter in Virginia. That's not all. He was nearly captured by rebels during the Overland Campaign. Those facts alone are startling, but we have Edgar's own words about his experiences in the Civil War. During his nearly three years of service from 1862 to 1865, Edgar wrote 181 letters home to his wife, Catherine. Those letters represent the bulk of this podcast. They give a good feel for the impact of the Civil War on a citizen soldier, but they aren't enough. I needed to know where Edgar was located as he wrote home, and I spent years doing research to fill my gaps of knowledge on the war. So this podcast also illustrates my Civil War journey thanks to my nearly 50 years' experience as a print reporter and editor. During these podcast episodes, I will be using suitable music, especially tracks from the homespun Kaylee Band. Their folk style fits perfectly with the tone of these letters. That's Kaylee spelled C-E-I-L-I-D-H. You can purchase the band's recordings at a reasonable price with a simple Google search. Their music was used with thankful permission. Chapter 1. Edgar leaves his wife and family in Lansing, reflects on soldier pay, trains in Detroit, and moves with his regiment near Washington, D.C. Thoughts on slavery as the cause of the Civil War. Detroit, August 17, 1862. Dear wife and children, I write to inform you of my whereabouts. I'm in Detroit yet. I expected to go through with William, but did not. I shall stay here a few few days yet. I have not got my bounty money yet, but probably will in a few days. Will started Friday night to his regiment. They will not let me go until the lieutenant comes to go with me. I would have written before, but I expected to get my money the first day I came here, but did not. I worked hard to get it, but did not. You must try and get along as well as you can. We drill two hours every day. I have not done but two hours of work this last week. We have very good times here. There are from 300 to 500 at every table, and all eat with their hats or caps on. We have butter, bread, pork, and beans for breakfast, sometimes cold and sometimes warm. Every meal is the same. We have fresh beef once or twice a week. We had a good time coming through to Detroit on Monday. I am somewhat lonesome today and wish I was home with you. We would have a time, I would bet you. But when I can see you, the Lord only knows but we must keep up good courage and all will come out well one of these days. You take good care of the children. There is the 178th Regiment on one side and the 4th Cavalry on the other side, both within 40 rods in plain sight. A rod is 5.5 yards. They are both nearly full. I cannot think of much more to write until I get my money. Then I will write again. 
No more from your husband, Edgar W. Clark. Historical context. The bounty Edgar mentioned was an enlistment bonus, a payment meant to encourage men to volunteer. Bounties were often paid by local citizens. This must have contributed to Edgar's financial incentive to join. As his service continued and pay was delayed, financial pressures became more intense on wife Catherine. Detroit, August 20th, 1862. Dear wife and children, I again take my pen to write you a few lines to let you know how I'm getting along. My health is first rate. I got $25 of my bounty today, and there is $17 more I will get in a few days. You must pay up the lot with that and tell Henry he must let you have some money to live on. You must keep good courage, and this will come out all right. A year will pass, and then we will be together again, never depart till death removes us. If you can, you must keep all of my letters till I come home. Get somebody to write for you Sunday if you can. I expect a letter from you or one of the folks every day. From your husband, Edgar. Notes. In a continuing theme, this is Edgar's first reference to the fact that wife Catherine was illiterate and had to have a neighbor read and write for her. This obviously limited their ability to share intimate details. By the end of Edgar's service, Catherine learned to read and write. Detroit, August 24th, 1862. My dear wife, I write to inform you of my health and other things pertaining to my welfare and happenings. My health is very good at present. I have been on duty four hours today and calculate to be on guard for four hours tonight. This is the third letter that I've written to you. I sent you $20 last week. I don't know how long I shall stay in this place, perhaps not more than a day or two. I hear that we will go to the regiment tomorrow, but I don't know. We have so many stories and promises that we do not know what we will do the next minute. Yesterday, I tried to get a pass to go downtown to see if I could get a furlough to come home for a few days, but could not. I will try again tomorrow, and if I can come home, I will be at home Tuesday night, and if I don't, I shan't be home at all. I would like to come home and see you again before I leave the state. Tonight was the first night that I tasted butter since I left home. I could tell you a great many things if you would read my writing, but seeing as it is, I must write so as not to offend anyone, you may get to read my letters to you. This from your husband, Edgar Clark, to his wife, Catherine. Historical Context the 3rd Michigan Infantry Regiment actually was organized in 1861 out of Grand Rapids, so Edgar and his fellow soldiers would be supplementing a unit that had already seen battles. Of course, in 1861, Edgar had a newborn daughter at home. Detroit, August 26, 1862. Dear wife Catherine, I hasten to answer your letter that I received yesterday. I have tried to get a furlough to come home, but cannot. We will leave this place today or tomorrow. There are 100 new recruits leaving today. I was sorry to hear that Mina was sick. I hope she is better now. It would certainly cost me $5 to come home and back. If it was saved and sent to you for your comfort and convenience, it would be better for you than it would be for me to come home and only stay for a day or two, and then have to leave for a long time. You would feel worse than you did when I left at first. It was hard for me to part with you and my two little children who are dependent on me for their protection and support. I wish it were not so, but this country must be saved, and someone has to go. I see in this morning's newspaper that drafting is ordered immediately after the 1st of September, so it is a sure thing, and I am glad that I am a volunteer and not a drafted man. We have very poor fare. I thought I would have a change and bought two good mince pies, and they were very good. 
There is everything to eat when men have the money to buy. Keep up good courage, and I will write as often as I can. I wish I knew whether you received the money I sent. From your husband. Notes. Edgar made his first comment about why he joined the army. There was a rebellion to be put down, and it must be done. The Union government assigned a quota of soldiers to each state. So if a state has enough volunteers, then no men would need to be drafted. By the end of the war, volunteering was far less popular. Historical context. On August 26, 1862, the Confederacy won a second great victory in Northern Virginia at Second Manassas, or Bull Run. This was marked by the daring of the new general in charge of the Army of the Northern Virginia, Robert E. Lee, and his right-hand man, General Stonewall Jackson. In a move that foreshadowed future tactics, Lee split his forces and attacked the larger Union Army of the Potomac. He figured correctly that a vacillating Union general, John Pope, would allow his tactic to succeed. The two Union defeats at Manassas against a poorly led Union army began to develop a sense of Southern military dominance. The rebels didn't need to destroy the Union army, only cause enough pain to force the North to allow the Confederate states to create their own nation. A few such painful victories could lead to recognition by France or England and encourage the people of the North to agree to a peace that included an independent Confederate States of America. During the Revolutionary War, it was the French Navy that helped George Washington win the Battle of Yorktown. Detroit, September 2, 1862. Dear wife, I again write to inform you that I am well and hope these lines find you the same. I received a letter from Mrs. Damon this morning that stated that you had received that money that I sent you. I felt a little afraid that you did not get it. I feel more content about it. We will leave pretty soon, and I thought I would write you a short letter before I go. You tell Henry he must let you have money enough to pay up the tax before the first day of October. If I enjoy as good health while I'm away from home, I shall feel glad. There are a good many going out with us, probably about 300. I would be glad to see you before I went out of the state, but it is impossible, and we must make up our minds to put up with it. Is the opinion here that the war will not last over nine months? I must tell you to take good care of the children. The horrors of war may find them fatherless and cast them upon the mercies and charities of friends and relatives, but God forbid that thought. I still entertain the strong conviction that someday we will be together again in this world of sorrow and trouble. You must not feel melancholy. I thought I would fill up the sheets so you would not say I wrote short letters. No more from your husband. Historical context. Edgar expected the war would be finished shortly, a common sentiment in both, in both North and South. Confederate President Jefferson Davis requested three-year enlistments but was granted just one-year enlistments. The Confederacy actually started a military draft about one year before the Union, a federal requirement that was contrary to states' rights. It was rare for Edgar to refer to the horrors of war even after he had experienced them. He spared Catherine most of the bloody details. Regarding the reference to filling up the sheet, the stationery was about five by seven inches, folded into four pages. Though there were plenty of photographs of the dead during the Civil War, first-hand descriptions are rare. In his book, Recollections of a Private Soldier in the Army of the Potomac, Frank Wilkeson, a journalist after the war, wrote this, quote, Wounded soldiers almost always tore their clothing away from their wounds so as to see them and to judge their character. Many of them would smile and their faces would brighten as they realized they were not hard hit and that they could go home for a few months. 
Others will give a quick glance at their wounds and then shrink back as from a blow and turn pale as they realize the truth that they were mortally wounded. They knew when they were fatally wounded, and after the shock of discovery had passed, they generally braced themselves and died in a manly manner. Washington, September 7, 1862. My dear wife and children, I again write to inform you of my whereabouts and health. We arrived in the city about one hour ago after a long and tedious journey. We left Detroit Thursday night about 9 o'clock. We got to the train cars there and went to Toledo and got there about 1 o'clock. We laid over until 5 o'clock Friday morning, then we went to Cleveland and got there about 10 the same day. From there we went to Wheeling, West Virginia. We calculated to go to Baltimore, but the news came that the rebels had taken one town on that road and we could not get through. Then we were ordered to go by the Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania Railroad. We had to go 50 miles to get there, which meant about 100 miles of unnecessary travel. I arrived at the regiment last night at about 10 o'clock. I found William well and all right. I'm quite satisfied with the regiment. I shall make myself as contented as possible and write two or three times a week. I will send you some postage stamps. You must write as often as you can. No more from your husband, Edgar W. Clark. Historical context. Note the reference to West Virginia, which actually seceded from the Confederate state of Virginia and officially entered the Union in 1863. Confederate forces led by Robert E. Lee were routed in West Virginia, battles that were marked by weaknesses that became a pattern for Lee, lax control of his subordinates, occasional failure to take charge of the battlefield, and overly complex orders. The mountainous areas of the Confederacy, places like East Tennessee and northern Alabama, tended to be Union strongholds because they did not depend on cotton or tobacco for their economy. For West Virginia, there were other factors involved in its secession. Wheeling, West Virginia was just 60 miles from Pittsburgh, but 390 miles from Richmond. Camp Wilson, September 9, 1862. Dear wife, I again take this opportunity to answer your letter that I received last night. I was very glad to hear from you, although I hardly expected it so soon after I got here. It done me a few dollars worth of good. I just went over to see Homer and his wife. They do not live as far from me as they do from you when they are at home. I made a mistake in that letter I sent you yesterday. I calculated to put in some postage stamps, but I was in such a hurry, I forgot it until it was too late. It's hard to get postage stamps here, so I bought $2 worth. I was paid $13 just before I started from Detroit. If you do not need it, I will keep it, for I do not know how long it may be before something may happen that I will need it. I have not got all that was promised me. I shall get it all before long. Now I must stop, for I am on duty today. Give my love to all, from your loving husband. Campin and Orchard, September 11, 1862. Dear wife, I hasten to write you a few lines informing you that I am well and in hope these lines will find you the same. I went down to Alexandria yesterday and bought a few notions, such as a shirt and cup for boiling coffee, a plate and a spoon. We have moved four miles from where we were to a more secure position. How long we will stay in this position is hard for me or anyone to tell. I got my likeness taken and will send it today. It is taken as well as I could have with the clothes that I had on. I hope you will be satisfied with it. If not, I will have it taken again when I get time. I have not had time to write a very long letter because I have got to go on guard this morning. It's not hard work standing still for two hours and then off for four hours and so on for 24 hours. William is getting my breakfast. No more from your husband, Edgar.
Historical context. Edgar's brief mention of the rebels in Northern Territory was a reference to General Robert E. Lee's invasion in Maryland and the eventual battle at Antietam. It was the first of Lee's major defeats once he left the friendly territory of Northern Virginia. He split his forces, a common tendency, sending one unit to attack the Federal Army at Harper's Ferry. The discovery of Lee's battle plans that were rolled around cigars gave the Union forces advance information. The Battle of Antietam was incredibly bloody. Because Lee had to retreat, it was considered a Union victory. The army that controlled the battlefield was considered the victor. This was victory enough for President Abraham Lincoln to announce his plans to emancipate slaves in areas held by the Confederacy to take effect on January 1, 1863. It was a war measure that would deny the South the labor of her slaves, produce manpower for the North, and pressure England and France not to recognize the Confederacy. By 1862, every other major Western nation had abolished slavery. Even Russia began freeing their serfs. An important note on Lee. He stated, and it has been accepted as fact in the Lost Cause mythology, that Lee had no choice but to secede with his native state of Virginia. Not true, as written by Ty Sedule in his book, Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. Sedule, retired as head of the history department at West Point, noted that in 1861, there were eight colonels from Virginia in the Union Army. Lee was the only one who seceded. Sedule concluded that, quote, Robert E. Lee committed treason to preserve slavery. After the Emancipation Proclamation, Lee wrote that it was a savage and brutal policy, which leaves us no alternative but success or degradation worse than death if we would save the honor of our families from pollution, our social system from destruction. In fact, after the war, Lee was charged with treason, but he signed an amnesty oath and received a pardon. Senator Alfred Iverson of Georgia said, that the South was the seed if a Republican were elected president and they would never return to the Union without a full guarantee of the institution of slavery. Quote, We are obliged to have African slavery to cultivate our cotton, our rice, and our sugar fields. African slavery is essential not only to our prosperity, but to our existence as a people. Edgar makes only a few references to slavery in his letters. He notes that the original group of Michigan recruits included a variety of people, including African Americans. By the end of Edgar's service, he was sharing the battlefield at Petersburg with entire units of black soldiers. Slaves were the most valuable asset in the entire nation, worth $4 billion. As James McPherson wrote in Battle Cry of Freedom, the Southern economies was described this way, quote, sell cotton in order to buy Negroes, to make more cotton to buy more Negroes. Or put it another way, quote, slaves were both labor and capital, as McPherson wrote in Ordeal of Fire, the Civil War and Reconstruction. William C. Davis, in his book The Cause Lost, Myths and Realities of the Confederacy, wrote that Southern leaders were caught in a trap. With slaves representing one-third of the Southern population, freeing them suddenly could bankrupt Southern society. If slave workers were replaced with wage workers, it meant hard cash that was in short supply, and the specter of four million former slaves let loose in the South was threatening to them. Now we know that after the war, there were no attacks by freed slaves. In fact, the opposite, attacks by the Ku Klux Klan and others against the freed slaves. We also know that with the death of slavery, white superiority remained. 
The South used sharecropping, tenant farming, and prison work gangs, and when combined with eliminating the right to vote, created the need for a second Reconstruction in the 1960s. As Davis wrote, quote, The leaders of the South in 1860-61 believed that their rights of property, self-government, the underpinnings of their culture and economy, all were mortally threatened by a Republican victory at the polls. In short, it is impossible to point to any other issue than slavery and say that Southerners would have succeeded and fought over it. They believed that a weak Northern populace would let them go without a fight. After all, even some abolitionists preferred secession. The tremendous conflict between morality and finances won by the South in finance is well illustrated by those two American icons, Thomas Jefferson and Henry Clay. Jefferson wrote that, quote, slavery is a hideous evil, a foul blot on the country, and makes a mockery of our sacred creed embodied in the Declaration of Independence. I meant all men, not just white men. While in Paris, he had planned to free all of his 180 slaves, but on returning to America discovered that he owed debts and needed a dowry for his daughter. So he freed none of them and left the matter to future generations, believing attitudes would have softened. Then came the Missouri Compromise with a Mason-Dixon line separating slave states from free states. Jefferson predicted an increase in tensions that, quote, one day will burst on us like a tornado. He wrote he would welcome death so he wouldn't have to see it. Henry Clay, also a Virginian, moved to Kentucky, plunged into the abolition movement as a young man. He soon discovered slavery was, quote, a necessary evil. I need a large labor force to till my lands, and the slave market is the only place I can get it. God damn it, a man can't operate a plantation and compete in Kentucky without slave labor. Confederate President Jefferson Davis said, quote, Submitting to the Lincolnites, the black Republicans and abolitionists who control the North, would put our slave system at the mercy of an abolitionist majority. This we could not allow. Our cause, I told the Confederate Congress, was just and holy. Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens wrote that slavery was the cornerstone of the Confederacy, not an evil to be gradually eliminated, as the founders said, but a positive good. Slavery, for many of its proponents, was a key to a superior form of civilization. It relied on a caste system of white superiority and black inferiority, a relationship presumed by the South to be the best for both races, ignoring the loss of freedom for the blacks. The white men of the South were a master race, proclaimed Georgia Governor George Fitzhugh in 1861. Though most Southerners did not own slaves, slave owners dominated financial and political power. Poor whites knew that they would never fall to the bottom rung of the economic ladder. In the book, How the South Won the Civil War, Heather Cox Richardson quoted South Carolina slave owner Henry Hammond. The Southern system was, quote, the best in the world, he said. And if the North tried to stop its spread, the South would win a civil war. He also wrongly said the South could control any country on earth by cutting off its supply of cotton. But that was the conventional wisdom in the South. The conventional wisdom was wrong. Cotton was not king. The British stockpiled cotton and then found other sources in India and Egypt. The British diplomat in Charleston, Robert Bunch, saw through the duplicity of Southern diplomacy. It's described by Christopher Dickey in his book, Our Man in Charleston. Bunch wrote to his superiors in Britain that there was no long-term benefit for Britain to support the Confederacy. This new Confederacy is based upon the preservation and extension of Negro slavery, Bunch wrote. He believed that the Confederates would be ostracized by world opinion. Robert E. Lee agreed. 
1864 letter to Confederate President Jefferson Davis, Lee wrote, As far as I've been able to judge, this war presents to the European world but two aspects. A contest in which one party is contending for abstract slavery and the other against it. Abstract? What is abstract about four million human beings or their four billion dollars of economic impact or the 650,000 people who died in the Civil War or the massive numbers of Americans whose lives were upended? But that single word illustrates the depths of the South's rationalizations. That the South seceded over slavery is clear from primary sources. The Articles of Secession written by Confederate states, Mississippi's Declaration of Secession was typical, quote, Our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest in the world. In South Carolina's Articles of Secession, the North was accused of breaking the compact and the Constitution. How? By denying the rights of property, meaning slaves, and denouncing slavery as sinful and permitting the establishment of society's abolitionists to disturb the peace of their property. The euphemisms were many, but the meaning was clear. In fact, the right to capture fugitive slaves was mentioned in the Constitution. The reference was not to slaves as property, but to a person held to service or labor in one state. In his final speech on the floor of the Senate, Senator John C. Calhoun of South Carolina complained about the rising abolition movement in the North and the refusal of many in the North to comply with helping to capture fugitive slaves. The South will be forced to choose between abolition and slavery, he said. In the Articles of Secession, you have to look long and hard to find references to any causes for secession other than slavery. To contend that the war was not fought over slavery is to say that the founders of the Confederacy were lying or simply wrong. Albert Brown, U.S. Senator from Mississippi, said that the secession crisis can only be resolved if the northern people would review and reverse their whole policy on the subject of slavery. In New England, abolitionists were strong despite the existence of slavery there at one time. In the Midwest, slavery had been banned in the Northwest Territories, so there were hotbeds of anti-slavery culture. Slavery was the deciding factor in secession. In fact, when given the opportunity to vote on secession, southern counties with the lowest rates of slavery only gave 37% support to secession, while counties with the highest rates gave 72% support. Secession had become a slave owner's movement, as David Potter wrote in The Impending Crisis, 1848-1861. The principle of states' rights was sometimes mentioned by the seceding states in the Articles of Secession, but in the context of slavery. A problem involved states' rights in the North, specifically their growing opposition to complying with the Federal Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Northern cities and states passed laws in opposition to the federal law or refused to enforce it. The Fugitive Slave Act stated the federal government was responsible for finding and returning escaped slaves and allowed federal marshals to require citizens to assist them. Slaves were denied jury trial or the right to testify for themselves. The slave hunter was paid $10 if the black was made a slave and $5 if the black was freed. This allowed slave hunters, often bounty hunters, to seize escaped slaves without due process and prohibited anyone from aiding escaped slaves or obstructing their recovery. The 1850 Fugitive Slave Act was even more extreme than the 1793 law that allowed slave owners to cross state lines to capture escaped slaves. The escaped slaves had no real legal rights. If a slave catcher made a mistake, there was little chance of correcting it. 
For instance, under the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, 332 escaped slaves were returned and only 11 were declared free, McPherson wrote. In his memoirs, U.S. Grant, whose wife came from a slaveholding family, wrote, The people of the South were dependent on keeping control of the general government to secure the perpetuation of their favored institution. Grant noted that the people of the North were not willing to play the role of police for the South in the protection of this particular institution. The Civil War occurred after decades of attempts to compromise over something that is a basic right, the essential humanity of black people. The so-called Compromise of 1850 only delayed the inevitable. Among its key features were admittance of California as a free state, no mention of slavery for the territories of New Mexico and Utah, abolishing the slave trade but not slavery in Washington, D.C., and a more powerful Fugitive Slave Act. The compromise, though ultimately a failure, had one great advantage. The delay allowed the nation to deal with a secession crisis with Abraham Lincoln as president rather than Millard Fillmore, a historic difference in presidential quality. During that 10-year delay, the North became more powerful economically and more able to wage a terrible war that settled the slavery issue once and for all. Besides the Fugitive Slave Act, the 1850s were marked by other tensions. The Kansas-Nebraska Act, which annulled the Missouri Compromise and led to border state violence, the rampages of John Brown, which personified the fears in the South of a bloody slave revolt, and publication of Uncle Tom's Cabin, which humanized the slaves and became a worldwide bestseller. In her book, A Key to Uncle Tom's Cabin, Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote at length of the truths behind her fictional characters. Lincoln read this book. While living in Cincinnati, a major stop of the Underground Railroad, Stowe came in contact with many escaped slaves. She wrote that she understated the horrors of slavery in Uncle Tom's Cabin because she feared that such descriptions would make her book too offensive. The decade of the 1850s ended with Abraham Lincoln's senatorial debates with Stephen Douglas for the U.S. Senate seat in 1858. The Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision of 1857, which indicated black people had no rights, made compromise impossible. By 1860, as Lincoln predicted, the nation could not exist half-slave and half-free and must become one or the other. Once you accept that slaves are human beings, in Lincoln's view, honesty compels only one conclusion. They deserve the protections of the Declaration of Independence, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Rationalizations that justified slavery, that some slaves were content or well-treated, fell apart because the excuses ignored the crucial fact that slavery was based on white superiority and black inferiority. As Stowe wrote with religious fervor, what is peculiar to slavery is evil, and only evil, and that continually. The difficulty of facing that evil is the motive behind the lost cause mythology. As Stowe explained, slavery treated four million human beings as things. They could not sue or be sued. They could not buy or sell. They could not own a foot of land. They could not form a legal marriage. They could not own or educate their own children. Their family loves were all accidents of bargain or sale. They could not le learn to read or write. They could not raise a hand against the will of any white person who might choose to insult or dishonor them or their wives or their children on pain of death. As Lincoln said, the Negro was a man. There can be no moral right in connection with making a slave of another. As he said on another occasion, if slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. Lincoln never claimed that blacks were equal in every respect, but he was consistent in saying that they deserved enough equality to earn the wages of their own work. 
Lincoln said the South was willing to make war rather than let the nation survive, while the North was willing to accept war rather than let the nation perish. As John C. Calhoun said in a famous speech of 1850, the slavery question was powerful enough to break all the bonds that connected North and South. Winston Churchill, who wrote about the Civil War in his A History of the English-Speaking Peoples, called it the noblest and least avoidable of all the mass conflicts. Frederick Douglass said that the rebellion of the South was unlike those in Europe intended to throw off the yoke of despotism. This one was intended to maintain despotism. It stands alone in its infamy. The conflict had been postponed as long as it was because the government gave slaveholders special powers. In fact, until the Civil War, the United States could accurately be called a slaveocracy. Charles and Mary Beard in The Rise of American Civilization wrote, The slaveholding class held the power in the southern states. It practically chooses 30 of the 62 members of the Senate, 90 of the 233 members of the House, and 105 of the 295 members of the Electoral College. As James McPherson wrote in Why the Civil War Still Matters, between 1789 and 1861, two-thirds of the presidents had been Southern slaveholders, and two-thirds of the speakers of the House and presidents pro tem had been Southerners. Twenty of 35 Supreme Court justices had come from slave states, and the slave powers always had a majority in the court. So it is no wonder that Southerners were shocked with the election of Lincoln and believed that a contract in the Constitution to protect slavery was about to be broken. The three-fifths clause in the Constitution allowed slave states to count slaves as three-fifths of a person for purposes of unfairly large representation in Congress and unfairly large numbers of members of the Electoral College. Though there were misgivings in the South regarding slavery, the sheer financial power of the institution was too strong. As William Seward said, did any property class ever reform itself? Not patricians in Rome, not landowners in Ireland, or aristocracy in England. By 1854, nine new slave states had entered the Union. In fact, the United States before the Civil War treated slave owners and slave traders with mercy. The Founding Fathers wrote into the Constitution that the international slave trade would be illegal in 20 years, in 1808. Then in 1820, the U.S. included slave traders in the Piracy Act, which included the death penalty. As described in the book by John Harris, The Last Slave Ships, New York, and the End of the Middle Passage, the international slave trade continued with northern cooperation. U.S. slave traders were rarely arrested or convicted, and when they were convicted, received light sentences or pardons. U.S. attempts to stop slave trading were comically ineffective, using slow ships that were outrun by the slave cruisers, while U.S. Navy ships were based far from the slave trading routes off the coast of Africa. New York City built a profitable business in slave trading ships that offloaded their human cargo in Cuba, the Caribbean, and South America. Of more than 70 slave traders convicted under the Piracy Act, only one received death. That came on February 21, 1862. As written by Harris, Nathaniel Gordon, a veteran slave trading captain, had completed at least four illegal voyages, reputedly earning him the name Lucky Nat. In 1860, however, Gordon's lug ran out. A U.S. cruiser caught his ship after leaving the Congo River with almost 900 slaves. The slaves were returned, and the Navy took Gordon to New York. After a mistrial, he was prosecuted, convicted, and sentenced to death. Despite pleas for mercy from petitioners, including Gordon's wife, President Abraham Lincoln declined to commute the sentence. 
Instead, Lincoln gave Gordon a reprieve of a few weeks. In his letter of February 4, 1862, Lincoln wrote that the prisoner should, quote, refer himself alone to the mercy of the common God and Father of all men. Only one other slave trader had been sentenced to death, but President James Buchanan, one of the worst presidents, granted a pardon in 1857. Buchanan of Pennsylvania did not own slaves, but he allowed Kansas to enter the Union as a slave state in support of the awful Dred Scott decision by the Supreme Court by lobbying Northern justices to support the historically awful decision. The Confederate Constitution included a section that stated no law denying or impairing the right of property and slaves would ever be enacted. As the Richmond Examiner stated, the war originated and is carried on in great part for the defense of the slave owner and his property rights and the perpetuation of the institution. Now, it must be noted that the Confederacy wrote into its Constitution a ban on the international slave trade. How come? Because the United States developed a thriving domestic slave trade based on breeding slaves like cattle. Virginia, the most powerful slave state, did not want imported slaves reducing the value of its property. Virginia and the northernmost slave states benefited from trading slaves with the cotton states of the Deep South. Banning the international slave trade wasn't altruism, it was greed, the real motive behind slavery. Even when a slave owner disliked the practice, it was rare to free slaves except after death. Even then, the heirs were able to contest the will and throw the matter to a court system that was not favorable to the slaves. After all, it was easier to sell a few slaves to pay off debts than to sell land. Yes, slaves were the most valuable asset in the Confederacy, and there was no compromising that fact. Amazing Grace was performed by the homespun Cayley Band. In the next chapter, Edgar W. Clark's 3rd Michigan Infantry Regiment travels to the battleground of Northern Virginia and then sees battle at Fredericksburg.